This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Professor Christopher Gers, who teaches history at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Chris has written and edited several books in the broad area of Christian history, uh, and his latest book is what he's here to speak with us about today. Uh, it was published this month uh, in 2021 with Erdman's, and it's titled Charles Lindbergh, A Religious Biography of America's Most Infamous Pilot. Chris, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Zach. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And Chris, why don't uh, before we jump into the book, have you tell our listeners a little bit uh, about yourself? Yeah, well, you mentioned that I teach at Bethel University in St. Paul, so I think this is going to be my 19th year. I teach European history, military diplomatic history, and some religious history, and even a little bit of sports history. Um, I'm a native of the Twin Cities, grew up here, then went out east for college and grad school, came back in 2003, and I've been here ever since. So, yeah, part, I mean, they, we'll probably talk more about Minnesota, but that's that's probably important to understand my interest in Lindbergh. Yeah, Chris, that's great. Well, you know, it's a, it's a really fascinating book that, that you've written here um, on, a, on a very complex, a complicated life of, of Charles Lindbergh. Uh, tell us what led you to this project. Why did you feel like this book needed to be written? Yeah, maybe needed to be written is, is too strong. I don't, I don't know <laughs> that it's that important, but it, it certainly felt like a fun project to take on. So I, I probably like five years ago, I was on sabbatical and um, you know, a lot of historians kind of get to mid-career and they want to write a biography. And so I've been giving some thought to that and trying to find someone to write about. And Erdman's has this series that goes back for a while called The Library of Religious Biography. And when it first got started, it tended to be uh, theologians, missionaries, pastors, evangelists, and they still do really good books like that. Um, Billy Graham, for example, was just was just covered by Grant Wacker. But especially in the last couple of years, um, they, they've tried to diversify and to introduce other kinds of religious or spiritual stories. And so I've been talking with the editor, Heath Carter. We were kind of bouncing ideas back and forth. And I think kind of offhandedly, he, he said, well, you, you know, Charles Lindbergh would be interesting. And um, I, I think it's just because he knew that I was from Minnesota and that I'm kind of tall and I'm Swedish by ancestry. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I had any reason to think that I would like that idea. But I had actually just been at the Lindbergh house in Little Falls with my kids. And then on sabbatical, we kept running into Lindbergh. Like, we we're out east and we went to the National Air and Space Museum. And my son wanted to do a report on the spirit of St. Louis. Um, and we saw his picture at the Wright Brothers site in Kitty Hawk. And it, so I, I picked up um, Scott Berg's kind of authorized biography of Lindbergh, which uh, came out right before 2000 and won the Pulitzer. It's it's a really good, like, comprehensive biography, the first one written with full access to the Lindbergh papers. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's a, a kind of religious version here, because I didn't know anything about, you know, did Lindbergh go to church growing up? Did he identify as a Christian? I, I knew the story that we'll get into, but I didn't know if it would fit the series. 
But like there was enough there in Berg's book and a couple others. And then as I started reading Lindbergh himself, I thought, well, this is great because this is not a religious biography. It's a spiritual but not religious biography. Um, this is someone who took um, God and mortality and ethics and metaphysics very seriously, uh, read the Bible, uh, admired Jesus, uh, studied Eastern religions, and yet never identified with any organized religion. And that really stood out to me because increasingly I've just been struck by this phenomenon of uh, spiritual but not religious, or sometimes it's called religious nuns, right? You see this showing up whenever there's a religion census or a Pew study of religion. Uh, 25, 30, 35%, whatever it is, of Americans don't identify with any particular religion, and yet they don't necessarily identify as atheists or even agnostics. They, they have some sense of the divine, of life after death, um, Practices like prayer, meditation might be important to them. They just don't want to be pegged in a certain category or bound by membership to a certain church or confession of a certain creed. That struck me like that. That's Lindbergh's story, right? And I thought maybe it'd be helpful for Christians like me to hear a story like that. And, and you know, Lindbergh's a very unique individual, very complicated individual. But maybe, maybe that's a kind of template. You know, it's something we can learn from as, as we try to understand our neighbors and our family members and friends and students who are spiritual but not religious. So that that's a long-winded answer to where it came from and at least initially why I was interested in it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it, it is a complicated story. And, and I think you do a really fine job kind of drawing out some of the paradoxes in, in his spiritual life. Many themes that, you know, a lot of a lot of folks uh, like like me aren't, aren't, aren't weren't really aware of, um, before reading the book, um, you know, probably most people just associate him with the, the feats of aviation. Right. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we can talk about some of those themes that you draw in the book. Uh, perhaps before that though, uh, you can sort of chart out Lindbergh's life for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know this, this book isn't, isn't a, a comprehensive account per se, uh, but, but maybe, maybe give us some of the big plot lines of, of his life. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. And like, I mean, that was my first task, right? I had to remind myself of who this guy was. Yeah, I, I, so like the things that come first to mind are the really famous and infamous things. So the very first thing anyone knows about Lindbergh is that in May 1927, he won a contest by flying uh, from New York to Paris in just over 33 hours, the, the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, right? And inspired this enormous response. 150,000 people left Paris to greet him at Le Bourget Field. Uh, ticker tape parades, right? Medals. He flew to just about every single state, did a tour of Latin America, right? He became the celebrity, and he even married the daughter of the American ambassador to Mexico, Anne Murrow. Um, and then in 1932, their firstborn child was kidnapped and murdered. And then the trial of the alleged murderer, Bruno Hauptmann, became this kind of crime of the century in the O.J. Simpson case of the 1930s. And the the press scrutiny was so severe that the Lindberghs actually left right before New Year's uh, in uh, in 1936 uh, and went to exile, basically, living in England and then France. Um, So, like, he had come a long way. Like, Lindbergh came from pretty, um, you know... uh, anonymous origins. I think Minnesotans will claim him as a child of this little town called Little Falls. Uh, and he grew up on this, uh, you know, this little house kind of the banks of the Mississippi River, spent time farming, hunting, uh, walking through the woods, right? Didn't like school very much. 
Uh, he also grew up a little bit in Detroit, where his mother is from and where he was born, and uh, especially in Washington, D.C. His dad was a five-term congressman, a uh, kind of progressive or populist Republican. Uh, and then Lindbergh became a pilot because uh, he was terrible at school. He flunked out of the University of Wisconsin doing an engineering program. And, and so from those origins, he becomes this world-famous person who has to flee to Europe to escape press scrutiny. And then while he's in Europe, he's asked to start assessing air power of uh, European countries. Uh, for example, he goes to the Soviet Union at one point. But most famously, and here's where the infamous part comes in, he also visits Nazi Germany several times and is even very publicly given a, a, a medal with a swastika on it from Hermann Goering. And, and here's, I think, where the story becomes really complicated, and, and people probably know. Lindbergh ends up coming back to the States to speak out against U.S. intervention in World War II, which, fair enough. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who are suspicious of fighting yet another world war so close to World War I, which killed 10 to 15 million people. Um, and there are people across the political spectrum, including Christians, who, who oppose intervention. But what makes Lindbergh problematic is that he... Um, publicly and even more so privately, is so admiring of Nazi Germany and so unwilling to criticize its its treatment of, for example, its Jewish population. And in his private writings especially, is quite disdainful of Jewish refugees. And he even writes articles where he says that the U.S. shouldn't get involved in this kind of war. And in fact, the U.S., Britain, France, Germany should build a kind of, uh, he calls it a Western wall of arms and race against the peoples of the East. <laughs> right? And he, he used the language of white supremacy. And in one of his most infamous speeches for the America First movement in September 1941, he goes to Des Moines, Iowa. And he complains that most Americans don't want to fight in World War II. Right? It's it's It's... Franklin Roosevelt, it's the British, and then it's the Jews, he says, who, who are trying to get Americans into this war. And he says it's, it's fine for them to want that, but Americans shouldn't, right? And it, setting up this idea, Jews are not Americans. It, it causes this enormous backlash, and then Pearl Harbor hits, and America first shuts down. And I think that's probably where most people's understanding of Lindbergh's story probably ends, right? Like the Des Moines speech, America first, and he's a Nazi sympathizer. And that's a big part of the book. But like for my purposes, writing a spiritual biography, the really interesting part is kind of happening in the 30s, but then it's World War II is a key moment, and we'll talk about that. And then the 50s, he writes uh, his first real memoir, The Spirit of St. Louis, is the story of his trip across the Atlantic Ocean. But to tell the story, he intersperses all these flashbacks where he thinks about growing up uh, and hating going to church. And he thinks about his questions about God, and he ruminates on the nature of mortality and divinity. Uh, and he's, he suddenly reveals he's been going through this spiritual journey this whole time. And uh, he really becomes a writer as much as anything in, in the last years of his life. Um, probably next in importance, he becomes an environmental conservationist. Uh, he travels around the world uh, trying to promote um, environmental protection of species, setting up parks, um, preserving wilderness and dies of cancer in August 1974 in Hawaii, where he's buried uh, under a tombstone with words from Psalm 139. So that that's my nutshell kind of version of the story of Charles Lindbergh, and I know we can start to flush it out a little bit. Sure, very good. Well, yeah, I mean, for all, for all the fame he achieved, I mean, you talk about the sense in which he was still unknown, especially maybe late, later on in his life as he sort of falls off uh, public radar. Um, 
but even as, as he's reflecting, as you, as you say, in some of these memoirs uh, on his earlier life uh, in his autobiography, um, maybe we can we can start there. Can can you tell us how how is he understanding um, this 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 lesser known relationship he had with religion, uh, with 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 the Bible and with science in particular, in, in some of these earlier years? Yeah, and I think that's a good way to phrase it, his understanding of this. But one, one thing that's really hard, like as a historian doing this, is Lindbergh basically says nothing about this topic until he starts kind of writing privately in the 1930s about it. And so in, in terms of like what was his childhood view of religion like, we really just have his word for it. Like I, in the book, I try to put it in kind of a larger context of what religion looked like in this part of Minnesota at the time. But what he tells us in his later memoirs and other writing is that uh, he grew up in a family that, that um, you know, there were members of a congregational church. Um, but his sense is they were only doing that for kind of social connections and for his father's political career. You know, the, like Representative Lindbergh had to be seen going to church in, in 1906 America. And, and the way he describes going to church, it's thoroughly unpleasant. You know, it's, it's hot, it's boring, it's tedious, right? He just wants to go swim in the Mississippi River or go walk through the woods with his dad, right? Uh, I mean, his mom reads him the Bible, but also tells him none of this is true. Her father is a kind of experimental dental surgeon who believes in evolution, um, he, he tries to set up this idea that he comes from a very, I mean, really irreligious, skeptical kind of background. But he also says they had always had a kind of a theological curiosity, that he had always wondered about God, and he always had wondered about what happens after death, right? It's just like church wasn't the place to ask those questions, and, and people kind of look funny at him if he would dare to ask them, is the way he presents this. I mean, and then you get to, you know, the next stage of his career is training to be a pilot. And, you know, there, there's no evidence, like, religion is an important part of that, except that aviation in the 1920s is its own kind of religion. There's a really good book by Joseph Korn on this called um, The Winged Gospel. And in that sense, you know, that's the kind of religiosity of, of Lindbergh is, you know, flight conjures ascent to heaven. Uh, freeing ourselves from the bounds of earth. Um, and he writes later that being a pilot has this kind of um, sense of divinity to it or immortality to it, even as you're risking death. And so that's how he tells the early part of the story. And what's unclear is, well, at what point, though, did he start becoming someone who's, you know, if not religious, interested in religions, someone who at least would uh, visit churches Talk to uh, uh, talk to the religious um, and read the texts of different religions, Christianity, but also Eastern religions. And it seems like that's happening in the early to mid 1930s is kind of the first sort of turning point there. Yeah, yeah. And if, if we look to this, this, this kind of mid mid 30s, um, and, and we think about his his involvement in science with with Alexis Carrel. Mm -hmm. um, where we may, as you say, sort of sort of expect a, a, a further uh, commitment to to science. This is actually a time where where we see some spiritual change take place in, in Lindbergh's life. What what can you tell us about uh, this relationship uh, he had with Carell and and how his thinking about you know spiritual matters was was sort of affected in this period? Yeah, no, Zach. I think you put your finger on it. Like, so the, let me tell the story, and then we'll come back to why this is unexpected and important. So. You know, as much as this part of Charles Lindbergh's life is kind of, I call him a famous unknown, I think Carell is a famous unknown. 
you know, um, Alexis Carrel is a French surgeon by training, and he won a Nobel Prize right before World War One uh, in medicine for his work on, on work on using animals to practice suturing blood vessels. Uh, he worked at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, uh, did all sorts of interesting medical research. And uh, Charles Lindbergh kind of got bored with flying and decided he wanted to become a biologist. Uh, his sister-in-law had heart problems and he wanted to find a way to do open heart surgery. And someone hooked him up with Alexis Carell. And they, they worked together and Lindbergh built uh, what was called a perfusion pump. And he published articles in, in the journal Science. And so it became this really productive kind of scientific research relationship. And so you're right, you would think, well, this would just naturally deepen that kind of childhood skepticism, right? That that sense of science provides the answers and religion is just pre-modern superstition. But Alexis Carell, in addition to being a scientist and a surgeon, is also a kind of Catholic mystic. Um, Like Lindbergh said later, that that Carell didn't really fit the kind of dogmas of Catholicism. but he was, he was deeply drawn to the spiritual. And increasingly, that's the turn that his research took, was trying to say, how can we use the methods of science to understand the supernatural, to understand spiritual experience, but how can we do something a broader idea of science itself that isn't just materialistic, that isn't just about laws of physical nature, but also encompasses um, the spiritual, the soul, um, human character, uh, God himself, right? Like that, that's Carell's project. And Lindbergh seems to be quite compelled by this. Um, and at one point, as he and his wife are grieving the death of their of their firstborn child, of Charles Lindbergh Jr., um, Lindbergh says to her, at least as her diary records it, I-, I think there's something that goes on beyond death, right? And it's his first kind of hint that um, this world is not all that there is. And that materialistic mechanical explanations cannot suffice. Now, it doesn't mean that he's about to become a Christian or a theist even of any sort, but it does show a kind of openness guided by Carell um, to what we could call maybe more spiritual questions or at least metaphysical questions. Um, and so it's interesting, like the more he gets involved in science, actually the more open to religion he becomes. And eventually the more than it concerns him when other scientists don't care about religion. Yeah, we'll probably get to this later, but this is one of uh, his takeaways from World War II is the danger of science and technological development that's not guided by a kind of religious wisdom or morality. Yeah, and that kind of seems to be another t- turning point there in the uh, in the book, uh, World War II, uh, in, in, in his thinking. And he, he writes these these two reflections on some of his experiences from the, from the war that you talk about, uh, thoughts of a combat pilot and, uh, flight and life. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us about, you know, some of the significance of these writings, uh, for how they kind of give insight into, into his religious thought here at the time? Yeah, no. So, um, a flight in life is a really short book. I don't think it's even 60 pages that Lindbergh published in 1948. Um, which, you know, Lindbergh is at the low moment of his, of his reputation, or actually probably nowadays is the low moment. But at least in 1948, Lindbergh was this isolationist, right, who opposed the war. What people didn't know is that Charles Lindbergh actually flew 50 combat missions in the South Pacific. He, he was meant to, he was working with Henry Ford to test uh, warplanes. And he was asked to, to go test planes in the South Pacific. And, but in the middle of that, he bombed Japanese positions. He got in a dogfight. He shot down one Japanese plane. Douglas MacArthur thought it was great. Uh, but that was all private at that point. 
And so this is kind of Lindbergh's first post-war statement. It's a very short, odd kind of work. It's it's about anti-communism, but it starts with these kind of vignettes where he talks about testing planes, um, being in the South Pacific, and then he toured post-war Germany and saw the devastation rained down by Allied bombers. And so the, the upshot of the book is this idea Lindbergh develops that um, science can be an idol. It is as dangerous as it would be to simply be captured by superstition, right? He also thinks it's a danger to be uh, so taken with science that you think that there's no need for any kind of ethical check. Right? He's deeply disturbed, for example, by Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he actually works with nuclear physicists at the University of Chicago after the war. And so this is where he starts talking about Lao Tzu, for example, but he also starts quoting Jesus a lot in this book. And he kind of gives the impression of having become a Christian. Uh, and then a few years after that, he writes Spirit of St. Louis, which wins the Pulitzer, has all this kind of at least philosophical, vaguely theological reflection. He talks about how there must be a God and anyone who's been a pilot should know this. But then uh, after the book comes out, he writes a piece for the Saturday Evening Post called Thoughts of a Combat Pilot, where he goes into more detail about his experience um, flying combat missions in the South Pacific. And the way he talks about God there is very, very strange. Like I found these letters from Christian readers who send him like gospel tracts because they're just horrified that you know this supposedly religious person doesn't understand who Jesus is and the real nature of God. And, and Lindbergh both believes there has to be something of a God, but he's not a God that you would find defined in conventional religions and apparently a God who allows evil to happen. Like it's, it's a very, I mean, I think fascinating reflection, um, a, a troubling one for people who want the story to be Charles Lindbergh converted to Christianity after World War II. So one way or another, like his wife and his daughter both have said that it was a kind of turning point or a hinge in his life, but it's maybe not the hinge that if you're a Christian reader, you'd want to see. Like at, at one point, I almost thought like, I'd, I mean, I'd, it would have made a lot of sense. Like if all of a sudden, like he had gone to a Billy Graham revival, right? Like that, that kind of would have fit the pattern. And instead he goes in his own direction. Yeah. And, and so he writes the, the spirit of St. Louis as a spiritual memoir several years later then. Um, and yeah, it's kind of marking this, this sort of quest for understanding God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you fast forward more and, and he's becomes a, a conservationist and uh, interested in Eastern religions. Um, and uh, yeah, as you kind of allude to there, you, you, you you write about these things and, and it's sort of building that tension, it seems, toward a, a sort of conversion experience. Um, talk to us about what happened instead. Yeah, I mean, I think where Lindbergh found God, as he understood God, was not in religion. You know, he, he's interested in religion. He's, and I, I would say here, like the other big influence in his life is his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who... Um, is more comfortable using the language of Christianity and quotes the Bible pretty proficiently, um, but is also really spiritual but not religious. I think she's nudging him and at least opening his horizon somewhat. I, mean, I think the big theme, we were going to call this book at one point Flying Solo, right? Because that, that's what he's known for, right? Is this is this one person defying the odds to fly across the ocean, right? Well, the, the, the same person who flew solo had to chart his own religious path too. And even some of his more religious friends, like Jim Newton, who's a kind of evangelical businessman, kind of had to accept at a certain point, 
Charles Lindbergh would never yield to the authority of someone else, right? He's, he's never going to adhere to a confession of faith. He's never going to become a member of a religious community or accept the authority of clergy um, or a hierarchy over him. I mean, he's always got to find his own path. And increasingly in the 1960s and the few years of the 70s that he lives, the path to God for him takes him to places like Kenya uh, and to Pacific Islands uh, and then to Hawaii is where he dies. And he's drawn there by a couple things. One is he actually becomes very interested in what he calls primitive peoples, you know, pre-modern peoples who don't use any of the technology that made him famous, right? He's really especially struck by the Maasai uh, in Kenya. And, and they have this notion of God, despite the work of Christian missionaries right next door, their notion of God is sounds to Lindbergh like pantheism or panentheism. God, God is everywhere or everything is God or something like that. And, and, and that sticks with him, right? And so not only does he meet these people groups, but while he's there, this is when he's having this kind of environmentalist awakening and he's realizing um, the, uh, the environmental impact of the technological change that he has been celebrating and associated with his whole career. And, and so through this encounter with these people groups and through spending time in these, what he thinks of as wildernesses of the world, um, He's doing environmentalist kinds of works, right? He's advocating for groups in the Philippines that are having their lands taken away for development. But what, at some level, what really is about to him is this is where he finds God. Uh, and he comes to see himself as part of this sort of, again, pantheistic, he calls it the life stream, that all matter, all spirit is part of this single like current running through all time. And so he, he, reflects at one point when he's in Africa, he looks up at a mountain, he kind of imagines himself being consumed by wild animals and reassures himself that, well, my life stream will continue. The matter will be absorbed. He doesn't quite talk about reincarnation. He doesn't get that far, but this is where he lands on his spiritual journey. And so it doesn't fit neatly into any particular religion, but it's certainly deeply spiritual, right? It certainly is interest in what goes beyond the world that is visible and tangible, Right? And it is connected to his quest for something like God. It just doesn't lead him to Christianity. Yeah, and we and we talk about the, his journey as as spiritual but not religious, kind of as the book sets out here, uh, and and how his detachment from that orthodox, you know, traditional uh, Christianity it kind of allowed him to, you know, maintain loose affiliation with with some teachings um of jesus and 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 ignoring others um how does this sort of interpretive framework for understanding his spiritual life help us then kind of grapple with, with some of his more off-putting um you know these complicated positions on on race and society yeah th this ends up i think becoming the reason for the book and the reason maybe it's a little bit mm -hmm. timely is I, I think you know i I started in 19, or sorry, in 2016. I'm thinking it's about spiritual, but not religious. But you know, I mean, I was writing the book, um, a lot of it in May, June of 2020, uh, a few miles away from George Floyd Square, right? And we're having this heated national conversation about race and racial justice and structural racism and CRT, right? And and here I find myself realizing I'm writing about a white supremacist. I. I I mean, it, it's hard to say because at a personal level, I'm not sure he was all that bigoted a person, but he clearly 
believed in the supremacy of the white race. He believed that God ordains racial competition. He, he hated the notion of human equality. He actually wrote that that was a kind of false idol. And even when people push back, he'd insist, the more I study God, the less I believe in equality. Right? And so what do we do with that? And it's hard. Earlier today, I saw a tweet. Um, someone had shared a picture of the book and someone I don't know, but someone they knew had written back, oh, Lindbergh, he was pro-Hitler and rejected Christianity. And I never know what to do with responses like that, because at some level, I wonder if people are saying, well, we shouldn't even be writing about him. Because like a biography of someone is inevitably, to some extent, a celebration, or it's it's reiterating their celebrity. And that makes me a little bit nervous with Lindbergh. But it is interesting, right? This is someone who at some level is pro-Hitler, or at least has some affinities with Hitler's racial worldview. He does reject Christianity despite you know, admiring aspects of Christianity, or at least Christ. And, and maybe those actually go together. Like what ended up striking me the most is one of the reasons Lindbergh could affirm this is that he didn't have any sort of religious authority, whether it was a high view of scriptural passages like Genesis 1, 26 and 27 about humans being made in the image of God, uh, that he doesn't have, uh, say, a denominational authority, right? That, that maybe forces us to grapple with things we don't want to think about. I mean, I go to a church where I hear a lot of preaching about racism and social justice, and that's often uncomfortable, but because I've committed to that community, I, I've got to consider those ideas. In Lindbergh, never is going to submit to anything like that, which I can get at some level. I mean, anyone who spent any time in a Christian communities or any other kind of religious communities knows the hypocrisies of them and knows the flaws of them and even the abuses of them. I think we all know pretty well. And so like that part of me can empathize with him wanting to chart his own course, right? But the problem with that is it meant he doesn't have to deal with objections to these convictions that he's uh, some of it comes from Alexis Carell's racial worldviews. Uh, there's some evidence of his father's racial worldviews. Partly it's just like he's a white American, right, in the first half of the 20th century. It's very common attitudes that he holds. And because of the nature of his spiritual journey, he's never confronted. He's never called out on any of this. He, he only has to pay attention to points of view that he is going to agree with. You know, like once in a while he will run into people who who push back and he you know, listen to them and then kind of file them away, right? Which is a very human thing to do anyway. But I think one advantage of being not just spiritual, but also religious is you do have to spend time with people or ideas that are not easy for you and are challenging for you. And so to some extent, like I come to the end of this actually feeling a little bit better about being both spiritual and religious myself, you know, even as there's plenty of other things happening in the news that, that make me worry about Christianity and, and um, agonize over it. You know, Lindbergh's story makes me a little bit grateful for for the influence of religion, not just spirituality. Not, not to say that Christianity doesn't have its own problems with racism and anti-Semitism, and that's part of the book too, but, you know, there's, there's at least maybe some benefit here we should think about. Well, Chris, I, I, yeah, I think those those are you know uh, really insightful comments there you make, and that comes out in the book um, too really nicely. Um, well, you've been really generous with your time. Um, it's been great to hear from you about the book, um, this this untold story really of of uh, Charles Lindbergh. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, can you tell our listeners what you plan to work on next? 
Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I'm always writing. I, I blog at my own blog, Pietist Schoolman, and then I blog for a Patheos group blog called The Anxious Bench. So in that sense, I always have kind of small writing projects going on. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the next book. I've got a sabbatical coming up in a couple of years. And by that point, I'll have been 20 years into my career. And so I, I keep thinking that maybe it's time to step back and to think about writing a book about teaching, which is, you know, I, I like writing and research, but I really love teaching. Um, or I've even toyed with the notion of writing something like a kind of advice guide for um, parents and prospective students of colleges like mine, or like as my own kids are going into sixth grade. And so it's not too far off from me being a prospective parent and, and seeing the whole process through that, that set of eyes. So I thought maybe it'd be worthwhile spending a couple of years reflecting on what I'd have to say to people to clear up some of the mystery that goes into higher ed. So one of those two is probably the next book. Very good. That sounds like great work. And we'll be sure to you know keep an eye out uh, for any new publications. It'd be great to have you back on in the future. Um, you know, for now, uh, thank you for writing this book. Uh, it's out this month with Erdman's Publishing. It's called Charles Lindbergh, A Religious Biography of America's Most Infamous Pilot. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.